for being here. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We use that each and every week and open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, go ahead. Uh, you can use your phone and just type in Exodus 20 to Google. Whatever you find there is going to be sufficient for our purposes today, okay? Um, so yeah, welcome guys. It's so good to see you and be with you. Uh, thanks for being here if you're tuning in online as well. And um, if you're newer to Sedaris, let me catch up to speed with what we've been doing during our time of teaching. Uh, it seems that each, each week now we have a handful of new faces, which is really encouraging. Uh, it's so great to, to see you. I hope to meet you soon. Uh, but let me bring you up to speed with what we've been doing on Sunday mornings. Uh, back at the beginning of the year, we started a sermon series in the book of Exodus. And we have been working our way through the book of Exodus since January. And we have made it through the first half. Look at us go. Okay, we've made it through the first half. Uh, first half. Uh, and uh, Exodus is a, it's a book that has two halves. The first half is all about the historical narrative. Uh, the Israelites being in slavery in Egypt. Uh, God delivering them through Moses and then bringing them to Mount Sinai. And then the second half is all about God giving them his law and how they work it out into their new budding uh, society that they have now that they are out of Egypt. Um, and so uh, today, uh, well, yesterday we arrived at Mount, or last week we arrived at Mount Sinai, and Dave did a big introduction to the Ten Commandments, because that's the first thing that happens at Sinai. God gives the Hebrews the Ten Commandments. And, and so uh, Dave did that introduction last week, and today we start uh, 20, where the historical narrative ends, and we're into the law, starting with the Ten Commandments, where we see that God has brought Israel to the foot of this mountain to begin a covenant with him. And um, to start with a little story, I've been actually working through the book of 1 Samuel with my kids, uh, Lucy's 7 and Penny's 5. We read a part of 1 of, of, uh, Samuel right now every night, and then we talk about it. They ask questions, I ask questions. It's like a fun little special time. And after Saul was instated as, as king in 1 Samuel, Israel asked for a king, and, and uh, that's where you see the kingship start in the book of 1 Samuel. And I said, Lucy, is, is Saul the first king, the second king, the third king? What's going on here? And she said, Dad, he's the second king. And I was like, oh, that's so sad. I was like, oh, you're not tracking with me. Saul was the first king of Israel. And, and I said, well, well, who is the first king of Israel then? Lucy? And she looked at me without skipping a beat and said, God was. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I just learned the Bible from my seven-year-old because you read the text right there and Samuel, uh, they ask Samuel, who was like the reigning judge at the time, the, the people that asked Samuel for a king and Samuel goes uh, to God and he says, hey, they want a king and God is grieved and he says, they have rejected me as their king. But when did God start being their king? Right here. Right here at Sinai is where God begins being king to the Israelites because he delivered them out from underneath the power of an evil, oppressive king Pharaoh in Egypt, not just to leave them stranded in the world so that some other power might come over them and oppress them, not to just let them uh, put a king over themselves that would eventually oppress them, which eventually does happen anyways, like 1 Samuel, Samuel recounts. He wants to be their king, and it happens here. And a relationship between a king and his people is mediated by what? Laws. Laws and, and these laws are meant to both order the society and accomplish what that king wants to accomplish in the world. And so God is trying to do both of those things through the law. And that law, like I said, begins right here. And uh, we saw last week uh, that Dave gave us a great introduction in Exodus 19 about what the law is all about, where we see poor old Moses. I mean, this guy's 80 years old, and he has to go up and down this mountain, climb a mountain three times. 
to facilitate this relationship between God and his people giving the law. But it's finally all done, and God speaks. God speaks. And so that's enough introduction to the Ten Commandments. We're going to go through the first three today. The first three today. And um, so, yeah, let's just read them together. It starts with an introduction, okay? That introduction is in uh, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, which goes like this. I think we'll have it on a slide for you behind me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's an introduction here. And, and if you have your, uh, your physical Bible and you have a pen, circle that word saying or underline it or box that word saying. It's a very important, important word because Jesus' disciple Matthew, okay? We're jumping forward like 1,300 years here. When Jesus' disciple Matthew pens his gospel, pens his gospel, there's a very significant portion of Jesus' teaching in there, chapter 5, called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And this is how the Sermon on the Mount starts. We're going to throw that up there too. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, saying, so we have God on top of a mountain teaching the crowds down below, saying. And, and, and here in the Ten Commandments, it starts with Ten Commandments. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount starts with ten statements of the blessed person. Any coincidence? No. No. In fact, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's, exp- it's Jesus' exposition of the full Ten Commandments. And what is he doing in these full Ten Commandments? He's transitioning us from thinking that we can do good things, saying that we need to be good people, statements of doing in the Ten Commandments, the statements of being the blessed person. And what he's going to show us is that no one can accomplish these Ten Commandments. And so as we preach through these Ten Commandments over the next couple weeks, we have three more weeks after this one, we're going to be bouncing back and forth to the Sermon on the Mount and back here because if we understand these commandments and if we walk away from these sermons thinking this is something that I can easily do, we've misunderstood it. We've misunderstood it. So, so that's to prepare you guys a little bit. Part of our job as pastors is to both show you that, hey, just like Jesus said, we break all ten of these commandments often. But he came that we might find forgiveness. But he came that we might find the devotion we need to to actually pursue what Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount, that in in spite of us failing uh, to accomplish it, we're going to try to be perfect as our God in heaven is perfect. And that's going to experience setbacks, and we have to run back to the cross time and time again for forgiveness. But that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks. So let's move right into the first commandment, okay? Commandment 1, 20 verse 3. Very simple, short phrase. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you have a a copy of the scriptures, you probably have the NIV or the ESV. These are the two most popular ones. And and right there it'll say, there's no gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And they'll have a footnote that says, or besides me. Uh, the other translation that's up and coming in the English world right now is the CSB. They, fit, they, they see fit, hey, let's just put that footnote right up there. You shall have no other gods besides me or before me, meaning in my presence. You shall have no other gods, period. Now, our, us as intellectual Westerners, we can quickly put this in the category of kind of Bronze Age stuff. We, we don't struggle with different gods, 
But actually, there's three primary ways, there's probably more, but there's three primary ways that, that humans across all times and all cultures fashion other gods for themselves. The first way is that humans are prone to deify the carnal. They, they make gods of things that are just physical things that you can touch, taste, see, hear, smell. We take that which isn't God and we call it God. We call the created things gods. Now, now in Egypt and in the surrounding nations, uh, everything was seen as a god. You had your sun god, your moon god, your star god, your agriculture gods, your fish gods, your bug gods. Everything was a god. This is humans making carnal things gods. And, and God roundly prohibited Israel with this commandment from, from calling these things gods as well. In fact, that's exactly what Genesis 1 is about. There's a lot of debate over Genesis 1 and how to interpret it, but actually the central thing of what Genesis 1 is all about is God is giving Israel this text saying, I created this, 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 and this, and do you know what was happening around them? All the other nations were worshiping that long list of things. So Genesis 1 is Israel's kind of trump card over all the nations. Do you know what your gods are? The things that you worship? Our God made those things. It's kind of this super audacious trump card to the surrounding nations is Genesis 1. But humans make carnal things gods. And, and it, we do it too. Even though we are uh, scientifically minded, we, we know, for example, that the sun is not a god. It's actually just a ball of flaming gas. We, we, we know that. But our human tendency to, to make these gods, it didn't disappear with scientific knowledge. What it did was it just found replacements. Um, it just found replacements. And, and often, science is that for many. It's just that. Now, I'm not being anti-intellectual. I have a BS in a uh, Bachelor of the Sciences. I'm not BSing you. I have a Bachelor of the Sciences in astrophysical, planetary, and atmospheric science. Like, I love this stuff. I, I geek out on this. I continue to, like, do you know, like when we found the Higgs boson a decade ago, it like upended the standard, the standard model of, of particle physics, and it's been super exciting over the past year. Okay, like I'll nerd out with this stuff over you all day, and now many of you right now are like, please stop, that's enough. And I get it, okay, I have that self-awareness. But I wanna let you know that it's okay to love science and lean into it, but science can be, and often is, elevated to deity itself. There's a whole religion which follows it called scientism. Many know that, yeah, I'm, I'm in this religion of scientism, and they accept that, but most don't. And we actually did a four-week sermon series on that back in 2019, in the summer of 2019, if you want to go look for it. Um, but the, the gist of it is this. Um, you know, people who don't believe in God might look down on people who do believe in God, and they challenge them to explain the created order. And, and we say, you know, we really don't know, but when we get to heaven one day, we'll be able to ask God why things are the way they are. And they say, well, that's just this God of the gaps. You're not really being serious about answering this question. But scientism actually does a very similar thing. They, they, they say things like, just give us enough time and, and we will figure out scientific answers to all the questions that we have. But then when we are given the time and we don't find evidence for our theories, our reigning theories, they're still held very, very highly. And so what should we call this? It's science of the gaps. It, like there's, there's so many examples of this in the scientific literature, but I don't want to belabor this point too much. We have a lot of other places to go today. It's faith in a God, a carnal God of science. 
Now, now we can study and we can engage and we can use the benefits of, of science and still keep the first commandment. That's not what I'm saying. Just like the Jews could drink water without worshiping a water god. Does that make sense? Uh, so, so we can still engage in it on a very in-depth level. We can be the ones rolling up our sleeves and making the coronavirus vaccines, for example, okay? Um, uh, but, but we should not treat science like it's its own God. We should not trust science as this is the thing that will be able to answer all of our questions. And it, it abounds in the world, perhaps not in the church, but it, it's one of the ways that humans take that which is not God, that which God created and calls it God. Um, the second way that humans across all times and cultures worship other gods is they deify, <clears throat> they deify the occult. They deify the occult. We recognize power in dark spiritual, forces, dark spiritual forces, and we worship them in order to have access to their benefits. We've already seen this in the book of Exodus, for example, where Pharaoh's wise men, his magi, are clearly in touch with occult practices and doing magic on par with God until God begins to outstrip them and they can't keep up anymore. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Um, worshiping the occult is pretty obvious. Uh, powers of astrology, fortune tellers, uh, kind of going to them in order to gain insight from them, primarily about the future, but I don't want to spend a lot of time. There's a third way that, I, that we should really sit in when it comes to the first commandment, the, the way that we can make gods as the people of God. And uh, the, the third way um, is especially insidious. I've he- seen it happen in my own lives many times. I've seen it happen in other people's lives many times. Um, it's so prevalent, and it goes like this. Um, we can worship another God other than Yahweh by changing who Yahweh is, by taking God and chiseling off the hard pieces that make us feel a little bit squirmish about him. You see, we, we might not struggle with scientism or occult practices of the day, but we're often tempted to change the notions of God of the Bible, the God of the Bible that are difficult to stomach while still pretending that it's him. That's having another God than Yahweh. Now, there are uncomfortable things about God. We're actually about to bump into a few of them in the next commandment. They're there. They are totally there. And, and the question is, when we come up to those parts, do we pick and choose what parts of those are going to be part of the God in our mind? If we do, we've actually fashioned another God. We've actually, and this is, it actually happens all the time, but it, it happens all the time. Uh, throughout history, we see it happening in big ways. Uh, anybody know who Thomas Jefferson is? He's on, I believe he's on some of our money. Um, Thomas Jefferson, he created something called the Thomas Jefferson Bible, where he took the New Testament and he cut out the parts that he didn't like. And so essentially what we have is this Jesus who doesn't do miracles, this Jesus who doesn't say hard things. He just kind of says, that he pulls out the nice moral wisdom that Jesus has, to offer. This is the Thomas Jefferson Bible. This is the Bible that made it comfortable for him to, to do and operate his life the way he wanted to operate it, and he lived a pretty dark life. Um, but it, but when, when we tend, to, so all of us go to the scriptures, and we want to fashion this Jesus that we find, this God that we find, there's this inside of us. We want him to be more like us. We want to fashion him in our image, and that's not Yahweh. All right, so, so that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods beside Yahweh, period, okay? Period, that's it. And, and if you feel the rub, good. That, that's exactly what the Ten Commandments are supposed to inspire in every single human on earth. That's why God gave them. 
That's why Jesus expounded on them the way he did. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount later to show how he underlines this to convict us. Okay? So let's go to the second commandment now. Exodus 20, verse 4. It goes like this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequity or sin of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All right, so the second commandment is loosely no idol worship, but it comes with some baggage, all right? This is some baggage to deal with, and, and, and we're actually going to deal with that baggage first before we go back to talk about what idol worship is, because I don't want, there's, there's parts of this that's hard, there's parts of it that is unnecessarily hard, because it's hard for us to understand it, and, and so this baggage really is two topics, uh, the jealousy of God, and then God punishing subsequent generations for their ancestors' sin. So let's start with the jealousy of God. Here at Sedaris, we kind of roll up our sleeves. If, if you're newer, we kind of roll up our sleeves and, and we lean into these harder topics every time they pop up. Part of it is to be faithful to the first commandment like we just talked about. But the other part is we realize that when we do that and we jump in head first and, and we say, this is here, let's roll up our sleeves and ask the hard questions about it. We don't have to assent to it right away, but let's ask the hard questions about it. Let's wrestle with it. One of my favorite things to say is the name Israel. God gave them the name Israel. It means wrestles with God. So God's people are known for being people that wrestle with him. Okay, so this is a way that we can wrestle with him through his word. That's part of why we go into this stuff. We find that when we do that, it doesn't lead to death. It tends to do the opposite and counterintuitively lead to life. All right, so, so let's wrestle with these notions here. Um, first, the jealousy of God. If, um, if you have been uh, up on pop culture, you'll know that this is actually the very reason why Oprah Winfrey, she walked away from being a Christian. She said, I was jiving with Christianity, but then this notion of the jealousy of God, it hit me, and I was like, that's strange, and that was the beginning of her walking away from the Yahweh of the scriptures here in the Bible. And, and to be honest, there's no quick trick we can do to get out of this jealousy of God. Our God is timeless, and so the God that we find here in the Old Testament, it's not like we're not going to find him there in the New Testament or find him there in our own lives. In fact, in, in the New Testament, we come uh, when the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he started, and uh, a very sinful church, probably the most sinful church we have on record in the Bible is the Corinthian church. When the Apostle Paul is writing to them, trying to correct them of their sin, he says, don't you know that our God is a jealous God? So this jealousy of God is not something that we can juke our way around. This is part of who God is. He is jealous for our devotion. And when we elevate earthly things to the level of God and we worship them, God doesn't just sit in a corner sulking. He becomes jealous. <laughs> he gets frustrated. And, and the easiest way to understand this jealousy, I find, is to just put yourself in God's shoes. Put yourself in God's shoes. Because what God did was he created humans and he put them on earth. Well, why did he do that? Because he wanted to interact with them within the earth. And, and then as a gift, 
God gives humans the created order. He gives them the entire created order, and he says, hey, you harvest this potential. I packed this thing with potential, and I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm going to relate with you. I'm going to tell you how to harvest its potential. But you go out there and sow the crops. You name the animals. We're going to do this together, and it's going to be great. I'm going to move from just creating with the Trinity to creating with you guys, and it's going to be awesome. But then he gives us creation. And then what humans do is we take the gifts that he gave us, and we start worshiping them and stop relating with him. Who, who wouldn't be saddened by that? Who wouldn't be frustrated by that? Who wouldn't be angered by that? And just imagine fashioning a gift to give to someone who you adore, and, and you hope that that gift can, can, can maximize the beauty of your relationship, but instead that person turns around, gives you the middle finger, and just is like, just me and the gift now, and you're off to the side. I'm pretty sure that's what I did to my parents when they gave me an Xbox in middle school, you know? I was like, this is great. See you guys, you know? See you guys when I go to college, maybe, you know? Still trying to mend that relationship, it turns out. No, but, but this is what happens. This is what has happened when we worship other gods and idols. What we've done is we have, uh, we have taken the good gifts of God and we've said, these things aren't great. What can I get from this instead of what can we do with this, God? So, in short, idol worship is loving the gifts of God for the pleasures they bring you instead of seeing those gifts as instruments to deepen your relationship with God. These gifts are great for me instead of this is a gift that we get to deepen our relationship surrounding together with God. Now, now the prime examples uh, in, in our lives are God's gifts of work, relationships, and creation, Okay? And um, we, we love these things on such a deep level. And I want you to hear me clearly because I, I don't think the question is so much, does our devotion to these things outpace our devotion to God? I've, I've heard it taught that way uh, many times. It's been taught to me that way many times. And maybe you're like me. I find it really hard to wrap my head around making that value judgment. Like, is my devotion to my work higher than my devotion to God? That's a little bit hard to compare and, and so I think a better question is, um, is your devotion to these gifts of God rooted in and connected to your devotion to God? Is your devotion to the gifts of God rooted in and connected to your devotion to God? Which is to say, do you functionally operate as if these are, in fact, gifts from God meant to deepen relationship with him? Um, so let, let me give you an example that I'm sure no one in this room is familiar with. Let's say you're a nurse. That's a joke. Um, if you're newer here at Sedaris, I've got to explain this joke to you. We often said that Sedaris is the safest place to be on Sunday morning because of the number of medical professionals that are in our midst. Like if you had a heart attack here, you would have five people jumping on you to give you CPR and do all the things. You'd probably have an occupational therapist that would like, he would like, fix your neck while they're at it, you know, like you'd, you'd be like, oh, I don't have a heart attack anymore, and oh, my neck feels great, you know, like that's Sedaris, there's so many medical professionals here, um, but, but say you're a nurse, okay, um, and you love your work, work is God's good gift to you, okay, it's a good gift to you, but, but the question is, do you love your work 
for the work itself. For, you could do that for a variety of different reasons. Do you love the money it brings? The, do you love how it, it, it uh, immediately presents you as like this helpful, sacrificial person to, to everybody? Uh, nurses are very helpful and so sacrificial. We, we love them for that. But is your desire for nursing to, so that people, that's the first thing that they see about you? Are, are you the charge nurse and you just really enjoy the power trip of it all? Okay, there's lots of reasons why we can just love nursing for the gift of nursing if you're a nurse. But here's the alternative. If you see the gift of nursing as an instrument to deepen your relationship with God and, and accomplish his purposes in the world, do you see your work as a gift from the creator to use the other things that he's given you, namely your education, your knowledge, even your very body? Nurses, very physically intensive work to help him comfort and heal people in the world. See, that's a very different reason to pursue nursing and to wake up and go to work, isn't it? Maybe even perhaps to conceive it as, as a, the, using it as a chance to expose people's ultimate need for, for the comfort and healing that only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, that is not treating nursing like an idol for example. So that's just one example. We could do it with most professions. We could do it with most of our relationships. We can do it with why we va- do vacations. We can do it why, why we do all of our recreational stuff and creation. That's how we could do it. Because he's given us an abundance of gifts to relate with you on a deeper level, okay? And when we don't do that, we just worship the gifts. He gets jealous. It's very reasonable. All right, so l- let's move on to the next piece, which is difficult piece of stomach which is God punishing successive generations for the sin of their ancestors. Now, I'll just say it. Um, that's not what's going on in this verse. That's not what's going on here in this passage at all. Um, some of you might say, hey, Ryan, like that goes against biblical interpretation 101 if you've been to seminary. Um, and where the first principle is, whatever the text plainly says, that's how you interpret the passage. And yes, you always do that, except if there's plain interpretations of other passages that clearly disagree. And in this case, there are many, many in the Bible that disagree with that notion. They disagree with the notion that if you sin, God is going to punish your child or your grandchild or your great-grandchild, right? It says fourth generation here. And, and a couple of those are, uh, I was going to throw them on the screen, but we just don't have time. You can write these down and come back to them later. Deuteronomy 24, 16, God specifically tells his people who are meant to uh, operate in the world and show what he's like. He says, don't punish a son for his father's sin. Okay, that's in, that's in Deuteronomy 24. But then in, in, in the book of Ezekiel, the Israelites do that anyways, probably because they're taking this, uh, they're interpreting this plainly for what it is. They, they end up doing stuff like that anyways. And so the whole text of, of Ezekiel chapter 18 is just God saying over and over and over again, I don't punish uh, people for the, the sin of their parents. I don't punish people for the sin of their grandparents. I don't punish people for the sin of their great-grandparents. There's all these different examples. By the time you get to the end of Ezekiel 18, you're like, geez, this is redundant. You know, let's get on it. We get the point. But Ezekiel's saying, God doesn't work like this. And it's actually God speaking. I don't work like this. Jesus has to push back against it with the Pharisees of his day. They say, is this man blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus is like, hold up, hold up. This guy isn't blind because anybody sinned. He's just blind because God wanted to reveal his glory through him when it came to be time. And he goes on and he heals them. And he heals them. So the question is, well, why the heck is it here then? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, if that's not what it means, why is it here? Because sin, especially idolatry, is taught and passed on very, very easily to your children. And God is saying, if, if, if you sin, I'm, I'm going to punish you. There's going to be consequences for your sin. And if your children sin, I'm going to punish them. There's going to be consequences for them, their sin. But if you, don't want, if you want it to go well for your children, get serious about your own idolatry. Get serious about your own sin so that they might not learn it from you. You see, I'm in my mid-30s now. And in your early to mid-30s, you start to realize that you're just like your parents in a ton of different ways. In a ton of different ways. Your marriage looks a lot like theirs. Your parenting looks a lot like theirs. You relate to your work a lot like they did. You relate to your city, community, home. In so many ways, just like they did. And and you keep finding all these broken sin patterns in your life, and you're like, oh, my parents struggled with these. Why can't I get past them? See, idolatry is passed on easily. Children learn everything from their parents, even their sin, especially when it comes to the household gods that you're around all the time. That's why it's here. That's why it's here. That's largely a huge swath of the counseling profession is trying to help people not sin like their parents. That's a, that's a very big simplification. I know you guys do so much more than that. But there is this huge vein of, of counseling, which is family history. Let's unpack the sin of your family. Part of it is, you know, you're hurt by that. And the next piece is, you're probably going to do that. It's passed on easily. So let's talk about what idolatry is, um, because we don't have household gods, okay? Let's talk about what it is. We're going to abstract it a little bit, but we're going to nail down to what it was for them and abstract from there, okay? So first, idolatry is selfish. It's selfish. It's a system contrived to help people get what they want. Uh, it, It just empowers humanity to fulfill their base desires. That The pure notion of idolatry was that the gods could do anything, except feed themselves. And so if you wanted them to do something for you, you would bring them a little bit of food. They would look on you favorably. Great, I got to eat breakfast today. Now your crops can grow. That's how it was conceived of. And so you entered a relationship with an idol because you wanted something. And at its core, idolatry is selfish. It's selfish. It's a transaction because someone wants something for themselves. It's, it's selfish. Uh, second, Idolatry is easy. It's easy to get what you want. You don't have to be a moral person. You don't have to be a virtuous person. You just need to know how to bring the food from your hands and put it wherever that idol may be. Super easy to make a a sacrifice. You can be the most awful person in the world, but be on great standing with idols. It's easy. Uh, Third, Idolatry is convenient. It's convenient. You can do it just about anywhere. Anywhere. Uh, Idol worship was in the home. It was on many street corners. It was on the top of any tall hill. You could do it anywhere. Anywhere. In order to get exactly what you wanted, you didn't have to go very far at all. It's very convenient. Very convenient. We actually see God forbid this kind of worship of him later in the Torah. He'll say, when you worship me, don't worship me at the high places. And we can be like, God, what are, you, what are you talking about here? Like, 
why are you being so particular? Take a chill pill. People are still worshiping you, dude. Like, you just don't want them doing it on the high places? Why is that? Because our worship of God is not meant to be convenient. Not meant to be convenient. That's idol worship. It's so convenient. Worshiping God is meant to require more than that. And fourth, idolatry is normal. It's normal. If, if you were to ask an ancient person why they were practicing idolatry, they'd look at you, they'd shrug, and they'd say, this is how everybody does it. This is just what everybody does. It's normal. So using these four things, um, selfish, easy, convenient, normal, this is actually how we identify idols in our own lives. If, if you want to find a modern-day idol, start with your base selfish desires that all of us have. There's no getting around them. I have them. You have them. The person sitting next to you has them. We all have these selfish-based desires. And then ask yourself, how do I easily, conveniently, and normally fulfill that desire? That's how you find your idols in life. Here's an example. I mean, there's thousands and thousands. Of, here's one. Um, I can say pretty safely um, that we all have a desire to, to be, a, a base desire to be seen as good, decent, morally upright people. Um, this whole, like, I think everybody has that desire within them. And, and what's the way that we can easily fulfill that desire, you know, without actually having to do something good? Uh, what's the way we can conveniently fulfill that desire from just about anywhere? What's the way that, every, that it's normally done, that everybody does it that way? It's a social media post. <laughs> I've done this. All of us have done this. It's a social media post. It's, it's easy. It's convenient. It's normal. You make a small sacrifice to Mark Zuckerberg, and he, in turn, he gives you a little platform to look like a good, morally upright person. There's hundreds of examples of stuff like this. But all of us have sacrificed to that idol, and all of us sacrifice to other idols all the time. We go from money to power to image to sex. We can unpack the easy, convenient, normal ways that we try to fulfill all those desires. But the second commandment, God says, don't do that. Why? Because he said, he says, I gave you those desires. Come to me and I'll teach you how to fulfill those desires in a way that both lasts and glorifies my name. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. That's hard. That's hard work. It's inconvenient. It takes time. It takes emotional energy. It's rare. You won't find it everywhere, and you will be outed as a Christian for sure. But it is so, so good. And this is where so much of our satisfaction is found, through trying to feed our desires in relationship with God. He'll show us how to do that. He'll show you how to do that, but it won't be easy. Now, let's move again to the case law. We said how most of the law in the Torah most of the law in the Torah is actually just um, examples of the Ten Commandments, kind of worked out into the particulars. Dave kind of mentioned that last week. And in this case, we have one that actually surfaces really quickly with regards to idolatry, uh, which pops up in 20, verse 23. I think we'll have it on the slide here behind you as well. 20, verse 23. God says, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice it 
on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you shall profane it. So, so God is saying, don't make gods prohibits idol worship. Then he elaborates on it further. Now, even the stuff that you're sacrificing on, don't make that really nice. You're going to be tempted to start to worship that thing too. Jesus brings this up in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, people are swearing on the temple. That's really strange. Like, this is kind of a form of idol worship. The Jews of the day were starting to worship the temple as a form of idol, which was surfacing in their oaths. This is idol worship case law that relates back to the second commandment. And then verse 26 goes like this. It's really kind of funny. And you shall not go up (laughs) by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed upon it. What's this about? Not exposing the priest's nakedness. Well, in that time, idol worship was accompanied with a ton of sexuality. Temple prostitutes, um, both male and female, were very, very common. Uh, Very, very common. Sexual desire is one of people's desires. So if you fed the gods a little bit of food, you could have relations with uh, any of the temple prostitutes at many of these um, shrines. And and so uh, what is God saying here? He's saying when it comes to my worship, there should not be a hint of sexuality present. You shouldn't even risk the the, the priest flashing people as he walks up to do his duties if the wind were to whip up. And, and, and we see this actually happen in the New Testament as well. We see Paul urging women to wear head coverings. We're like, what's that all about? And it's the same thing. Idol worship there is kind of involved with sexuality. And so Paul says, hey, we don't want to confuse people that this is happening in the church as well. So let's not bring that sexuality into the church. And, and it stands for to us today as we all gather. God's people shouldn't bring the sexuality of our culture into our worship gatherings. Now, I'm not bringing this up because I think this is a problem at Sedaris. I'm, I'm just using this as an illustration. It's one of the things that works out from the case law. It's really born out of the Ten Commandments and highlighting one's sexuality. And God's worship gathering is breaking the Second Commandment as well. Like I said, I don't think it's a particular problem here at Sedaris. It's just kind of a cool little thing that's right there in the same chapter. All right, so let's move on into the Third Commandment now. Exodus 20, verse 7, okay? You guys are doing great. You guys are doing great. Uh, This third commandment is so good. It's so good. Uh, 27, you shall not take the name of the Lord. I'm going to use Lord there, all caps, as Yahweh in the text. So for this one, let's, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, Now, this means more than you think it probably means. This isn't primarily about saying God's name at all. It's not about saying Yahweh in improper ways, although when we understand its fuller meaning, it probably includes that. Uh, But the reason we know this is because of the verb used here. You want to throw it back up there? It's still there, good. Uh, You shall not take. Now, this was about speech. The Moses, the author here, would have had about 10 different Hebrew words he could have thrown in there. He could have used speak, say, utter, declare. All these different words that he could have used to put in there, but he uses this word take. It's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament and not of speech. It literally means to take, as in to lift something and carry it away. To lift something and carry it away. It's the Hebrew word nasa. It's used hundreds and hundreds of times. And in fact, it, and it usually means to lift something and carry it away. 
In fact, armor bearers in Israel, they're going to go into the promised land and become warriors, and soldiers would have their armor bearers. Armor bearers are called Nasa. Same word, because they lifted somebody's armor and carried it with them wherever they went. Now, it's very understandable why this command is so widely misunderstood, because after all, we have this verb that talks about literally and tangibly carrying things attached to an abstract name. Like, how are we to unite these things together? And the solution has been, okay, well, just, let's just make the, the verb a little bit more conducive to, to make the abstract notion carry forth. But that's actually the, the wrong way to think about it. What we need to think about is how can we make this name of God more tangible and literal in the world? Because after all, that's, all that, that's what the Torah is all about. That's why God has brought his people out of Egypt to make his name known in the nations. That's his whole goal, is to work his name from the abstract to the literal, from the intangible to the tangible. So how does this work? God gives us a big clue as to how this works at another key text here in the Torah. It's in Numbers chapter 6. Numbers 6. So look for the name language here, okay? Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You should say to them, uh, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yah- Yahweh make, you face, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. I will bless them. This is what's known as the Aaronic blessing um, because it's the priestly blessing that Aaron and his descendants would say to Israelites in their worship service. And it's been uh, modern-day worship services. Uh, this functions as the benediction in a service where, where uh, typically the, the priest or the pastor will come up at the end of the service and issue a blessing. And what are they doing there? They're putting the name on the people of God that they can lift it and carry it into their week, into their work, into their families, into their social gathering. Everywhere they go, they're carrying the name of the Lord. The priest blesses the people and by doing so puts the name of God on them. So how does this God become literal and tangible in the world? Through his people. That's his plan. We, we preached on this a month ago and we went through... Um, Chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Through his people living lives of blessing and love to one another in the surrounding world. That's how God makes his name. Takes it from the abstract and puts it into the literal. Through you and me. Through you and me. And the third commandment says, don't take that blessing on in vain. (laughs) Don't carry God's name out into the world in vain. Don't do it in vain. That is, Don't do it in a futile, don't do it in an empty way that isn't going to help people understand what God is actually like. Don't, don't carry God's name into the world and live contrary to who he is. To, to, to live contrary to how Christ wants us to love in the world. That's taking his name upon you in, in the most futile and empty sense. Don't shrug it off like it's nothing. What does this mean? It means that all of us are breaking the third commandment often. 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 All of us ignore the person at the grocery store instead of loving them. All of us have times where we're short with our coworkers instead of showing them the patience of God. 
all of us are, are prone to fall into a disposition of judgment upon our families instead of grace towards our families. We act inconsistently with who God is all the time. And the third commandment tells us that this is not just sins against them, it's sins against God. God. And it says at the end there, seven, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So is there no hope for us? Well, there's definitely hope for us. Because if we fast forward to Exodus 34, we're going to be there in a month or so, a few months. Exodus 34, verse 5, says this. Yahweh descended in the cloud. This is when um, Moses said, God, I want to see you. So God puts him in the cleft of the rock, shields his eyes, and says, you can look at my back as I walk away. And he says this when he does this. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, that's sin and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children. We talked about that a little bit already, to the third and fourth generation. God gives a law that proves we're all guilty, but then promises forgiveness in that phrase. You want to back it up again, one, Ethan? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands who break his law, you could put in there, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Three words to just highlight the totality of it all. Forgiving it all. Forgiving it all. Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount, we can't keep the Ten Commandments. And at one point in his ministry, Jesus says, if you want to understand the law, understand it like this. The first and greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's all the law. He gives us this bonus little phrase after it. On these hinge all the law and all the prophets. That's what he says. And these first three commands are clearly about loving God. And, and the, rest of the, Torah, the rest of the Torah commands that have to do with loving God flow through these three. And after we understand these items, we, we, we really begin to understand that loving God is meant to be so much more than just an emotion towards him, so much more than just some base allegiance toward him, but deep, deep devotion. Deep devotion. That's what the, the, we, we read the first three commandments and we say, this God who ha- wants no other gods besides him, who wants no idol worship in vain, who, who, or who, no idol worship and wants us to carry uh, his name into the world, not in vain, is very concerned with our devotion to him, not just in the worship setting, but in every area of life. That's what this is all about a life of devotion to God. And that's right after the 10 statements of the blessed person that Jesus gives. He gives us this phrase, which corresponds to these first three commandments. It's Matthew 5, I think it starts in 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all. 
in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fulfill them. This corresponds to these first three commandments. Jesus calls for intense devotion to God. Worship God alone. Carry his name into the world with intention and devotion, with his purposes in mind. And all of us will fail at this. And how can our saltiness be restored? Through uniting ourselves to his redemption and his power through repenting of our sin and believing in his gospel message, all of which he won for you on the cross. He won it for you on the cross. He he guaranteed it to you by his resurrection, and he gives it to you through his powerful ascension that he sent the Spirit into us. He continues to pour out grace and forgiveness on us as as we fall short in these commands that we might take his name on again and carry it into the world to glorify the Father and bring salt and light to a bland and dark place. Would you pray with me?